Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Neil Haley show here on the Media Giant Effect as well, and I'm excited to welcome her to my co-host Kim Sorrell, author of Love Is Kim. How are you? I know you're excited about our guest, and you know I've interviewed him before, but now this project's such an important thing to discuss today. So, Kim, I know you're excited to introduce our guest for us. I am excited, Neil. Great to see you and Harry. Welcome to the show, and so great to see you. Of course, you are so well known um, from so many movies and TV and the blacklist and things that people have loved. And you were born in the same city my dad was. That is just a couple hours away from me, Chicago, great city. And what what a great project this was. So, um, can you tell a little bit about the premise of the movie? Yes, I'd be delighted to tell you. First of all, it's great to be on your show. Thanks for having me, Kim and Neil. This is. Terrific. Glad we get a chance to talk uh, more or less face to face. But I'm yeah. I'm uh, pleased to tell you about a show, a movie that I'm in, which is called Nothing Is Impossible. And it's, and it's more or less uh, is as it is advertised. It's about uh, bringing an uplifting word that uh, with a little bit of faith. Actually, Jesus once told us with the faith the size of a mustard seed, we could move mountains. He also told us. Uh, his disciples that uh, it is easier for a rich man or for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And his disciples wondered how that could be. And he said, well, with man, it is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible or all things are possible. And that's really uh, what what uh, what the movie is about. That It may look like things are not going to be easy. Uh, we may have been confronted with frustrations. In this case, Uh, we've got a basketball player who was once a star in high school, and now he's gone on to become a janitor at that very high school where he's once a headliner. But he gets a second chance. And I, I think really what the message of the movie is, is that uh, through this little parable about a basketball player and a basketball team trying to trying to uh, reestablish itself as a contender, uh, that sometimes God takes what could have been seen as a frustration, as a, as a, as a failure even, and can turn that into a great success with far more meaning than might otherwise be apparent uh, on first view. So that's what uh, that's what we're involved in in this film. You know, Harry, are you a basketball fan, by the way? <laughs> you a- I was watching last night. Uh, I was watching last night as the uh, Los Angeles Lakers went down to the Minnesota Timberwolves. So, yes, uh, I, I root for, for a bunch of teams. I root for college, uh, but, uh, you know, I also watch a lot of the NBA. Yeah, I'm a college Pitt fan. Pitt's not done well for a while. And NBA, I like the Nuggets and Cavaliers, but it was at different times. And, you know, LeBron was with the Cavs. We're back in the days of Mark Price and Brad Doherty and all that. So I'm a huge, huge fan. Just, again, busy as can be to watch sports as much when we get our projects together. So what? tell us about the premise of your character. Tell us about your character. 
Yeah. So I play Coach Russell Banks. Uh, he's a little bit uh, jaded. You know, he doesn't want to go through this uh, open tryout. That's what's happening is that the, the Knights have uh, been uh, forced really to, to expand their, their, their talent pool. They want to look locally. They, so they host open tryouts. Uh, and I'm a guy that's been in the league a while. And this to me just seems like a stunt. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I kind of compare my character to the, the Roman centurion, you know, at the, at the, at the cross, uh, at the temple, when, uh, the, when, when he says, surely this man is the son of God, when the veil on the temple is rent, and, uh, and he becomes a believer, in spite of the fact that he didn't think that there was anything to this, he too, I think, uh, in seeing this man struggle for, for the second chance, this other opportunity to redeem his life. I think that uh, by witnessing someone who does that successfully, uh, you know, that anyone can become a believer. And, I, and that's who uh, Russell, oops, that's who Coach Russell Banks is. <laughs> Practicing well, skills in basketball. Catch that's right. Ball, right? That's right. I, a little, uh, some sort of little net that just passed by. I think I got it, though. It happens. So, yeah, I I love the the character. I coached basketball for years and volleyball for years. And and I know what a different relationship it is to be a coach compared to a teacher, compared to um, a parent, compared to any other thing. Like a coach is is a, a mentor, such a deeper relationship. How did that work in for you in this movie? Well, you know, I, I, I never really coached as much as I was, however, a teacher. Um, and I've coached actors and so forth. I've directed plays. All of them kind of have a commonality of modeling, you know, in, in, in place. That is to say, uh, a good coach is somebody who, who knows the rules of the game, who's played the game, uh, that, that can uh, navigate and help others navigate their way through the, the obstacles and the challenges that will come up in the game. And because they keep their composure, because they're able to, to think through situations that are difficult, uh, they can help other people. I find the same thing is true for being a teacher. I remember uh, I taught music for oh, on and off for eight years in the oh, Chicago wow. public school system. And I learned a great deal. I learned as much from my students, I think, as they learned from me. And I think it's that exchange of ideas that distinguishes uh, we humans, you know, from, from other life forms. Uh, you know, there are very many intelligent animals around uh, the planet. God was very judicious in how he doled out that intelligence. But if you, if you think about something like a... a um, an octopus they have eight different brains, I think. Uh, each one of their tentacles have it, but they aren't able to pass on information from one generation to the next. They become senescent uh, as soon as they become, you know, uh, uh, able to produce offspring and so forth. Uh, but that said, humans are, and uh, we, we have the ability to teach each other, to exchange information with each other, to lay down uh, these plans. It was in God's design and will that we were able to do this, whether it's through nature or nurture, uh, we have that that combined thing. And I and I think that inspiration is really contagious. I think it, it can be passed on from one person to another. It's, you know, it's not just viruses that can do that. It's actually the the, the virus of the human spirit has the ability to uh, go on in spite of the fact that it may end in a kind of terminus uh, for one of us. We have as a species as a as a creation, uh, the ability to pass on this story of love and light to each other. So that's that's the great thing about being able to do movies like this. 
you know, and it's interesting when you talk about teacher, I was a teacher for nine years as well, Harry. So I understand exactly uh, the, the process of how, what relationship you can develop from your students because you're with them in the grind every day. It's almost the same thing as coaching in, in my opinion, because I've done both and I didn't do as much coaching of sports as I got the opportunity to teach. And when you're teaching somebody, they really build, they build even more trust and they tell things more than ultimately even uh, they tell their parents. Isn't that true? And so and that's the process of a coach is really to get to hear a lot more than what's going out, what's happening in that child, that student's life than anything else. I quite agree. I think probably on the whole, unless people are homeschooled, you're going to spend a lot more time with your teachers than you do in conversation with your parents and other family members. I think, uh, I don't know what the statistics are now, but on average, it can't be more than a few minutes uh, that people spend the time. Even now, you, you go to uh, out to dinner at a restaurant, you'll see two people in conversation, but they'll both be, everybody's on their cell phone. That happens a lot in homes and so forth. So in any event, I think in terms of the constant contact, uh, time on task, time in front of people, uh, those people who teach us in school or those people we work with on a daily basis, we spend a great deal of time with, with those people and a lot of messaging, a lot of uh, information, a lot of uh, knowledge about who each other are, you know, that, that becomes almost unavoidable. And, and so I, I find that, again, I, I, I go to the to the modeling idea that uh, that that's really what coaches, teachers, uh, and colleagues really become. Yeah, that it's so interesting, right? I, everything that you're saying is so fascinating and so true. And so, in this movie, but not just in this movie, but in acting in general, you're everybody's an influence on everybody, right? So uh, there are only so many Christians. And um, Hollywood's not necessarily known for tons and tons of Christians, right? What is, what, how did that play into your life? Like with everything you've done? You bring up a very interesting uh, thing I like to talk about, Kim, in, in this regard. You know, if you think about the spread of Christianity itself, it would have been impossible really without the Roman road system, this the system that the Roman army, basically, the military of Rome put together to subjugate uh, its conquered uh, lands and, and the people who occupied those lands. It was the very uh, engineering of that that made the spreading of the gospel possible. So that which the enemy has used for, uh, for our opposition and for our challenge and struggle, God is able to repurpose that. And I think that that's true of Hollywood as a whole, that these machines, it's called the the, uh, what is it called? The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. You know, it's, yeah. it's a highly technical and developed machine. It's over hundred years old. It's extraordinarily successful at being secular, at uh, passage on, uh, passing on, making itself into a, a God myth-making uh, 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 industry, you know, creates heroes all the time. It propagates all these messages, which we find sometimes antithetical to the spreading of the gospel. But even these machines, even this industry is able to be used to put out messages like we do and nothing is impossible. And I take great encouragement from that. And, and, and so, I, you know, that's, uh, that's something that God teaches us all the time is that which the enemy meant for our undoing. He is able uniquely uh, to use for our upliftment. 
-hmm. So nothing is impossible is the way that the theme and you hope everyone that comes and watches this learns that right that nothing is impossible. Really. That's right. That's right. And it's small little footprint of a way, you know, that, uh, you know, but we need these messages, these, these kind of palate cleansers. I, I do a TV show on the, which I enjoy and I'm very grateful for. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it deals with things that are a little more cynical, a lot of criminals and so forth. But this is just regular people getting by in life. And we take this small little narrative feature and, uh, and, and they're able to show that even in our in our daily lives, in a, in a quotidian uh, uh, bread and butter kind of situation, that great lessons and messages can be learned. That if we're able to, to just see our way to giving it a chance, uh, we could be greatly, greatly inspired. I, I love that. I love how you are able to look at life that way, look at Hollywood that way, look at everything that way, that, that there are so many things that we're so challenged with that it seems like everything's against us, but really God can turn anything around and turn it into something positive and something good and right. work for right. you instead of against you. What does it say, Kim? It says, uh, uh, it says many, th the Bible says this wonderful thing. I'm trying to remember exactly. Uh, for if God be for us, who can be against us? Right. Right. <laughs> <Love> <laughs> <that>. <laughs> to have those inspiring, inspiring messages and all those different things. What do you feel, you know, for your career, what do you want to be most remembered by? What would you say, Harry, like in your career? Yes, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I always go back and, and I, I don't think it could be put any better than the way our, our Lord put, uh, put certain ideas, uh, concepts. It says that for by our love, they will know that you are my followers. Uh, we used to say in, in my church, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. And I, and I think that we are, we should never forget that love is not some result that is arrived at. It is not some uh, permanent condition of, 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 of being, that it is actually an action word to love. Uh, the, the, it is something that is in order for us to do. How do we love? Well, we care. We, we, we show. God told us that there are three great things. Well, actually, it was uh, Paul that wrote, there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And that is a constant effort that we have to do to show that we care, uh, to extend our charity, our caring, our giving, our action, our deed. And, and so it is in my deeds uh, that I hope that, you know, of course, we know that that faith without works is dead. We also know that we can do nothing that would really equal the glory of God, but that we must continue to strive to show our love for each other. And that's how we will, people will know. That is the proof. That is the evidence of, uh, of, what, uh, of what we believe is the gift of God himself. And Kim has a, qu a question to add about love. And she wrote a book all about, and it's called Love Is. So go ahead, Kim. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Harry, I'm hoping to send you a copy of it, actually. Oh, great. Because great. Uh, we, are, we are kindred spirits, brother. And so I, I dedicated a year to really search for the true meaning of love. And I used 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast, et cetera, right? And I took one word a month. 
and really worked on it. What is love that is patient? What is love that is kind? Because John says that God is love. So love isn't an emotion like fear or excitement. Love is living and breathing. And like, like just as you've described it, right? It is so much more than, than just something you feel, but it's something you do. It's something you are, something you live. And uh, so anyway, I want to know, how, how does that translate to you? How does that translate in your life? Well, I think it's, you know, I, I like to think that the way that we can show that we love something is when it is not com comfortable or convenient. Uh, you know, being kind when we are tired. Uh, I remember that, that wonderful story in the Bible where the young kids, they want to play with Jesus and the disciples are shooing them away. And he says, no, no, suffer the little ones to come unto me. It's, 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 it's when it's not easy that it is provable that it is love. It is the fact that we have sinned and God has given us another chance that allows us uh, to live by that creed that it says in the Bible. Uh, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And this is challenges. It is because it is difficult. Uh, you know, John Kennedy put it uh, very beautifully in his inauguration address. Uh, we do these things because they are difficult. God has, give, has empowered us with the ability to overcome our fear, our, uh, our tiredness, our boredom, our anger, uh, our self-loathing sometimes, our, our self-love sometimes, that if we could just continue to live by the example of the one he sent in the flesh, uh, as the embodiment of these principles, that it is because it is difficult, it is because it is challenging, that we are able to aspire to God himself, that it, you know, of course, to God, everything is easy, but he does not take the easy way out. He loves us in spite of these, and when he has reasons not to, when he has reasons to forgive, to give up on us, and it is because he does not that we cannot give up on ourselves. And so I think that's really how it makes itself manifest to me. You know, I'm going through uh, the same uh, struggles in life. I've got friends who are facing uh, their final days and their ways. And so and it's not always easy to be able to speak uh, wisdom and to speak comfort uh, in spite of these very frightening things. But it is because we have been shown and been given this opportunity uh, that we know that we can provide uh, these words of encouragement to other people. It is that line that somebody just reminded me not uh, a few minutes ago, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I, and, and I think that that's what I have to continue to, to challenge myself to do uh, all of the time. Uh, and so I'm grateful for movies like Nothing Is Impossible. I'm grateful to... Uh, up for opportunities like this, where I get to speak, Kim, to, to you, wrote a book on love, to talk to Neil, who uh, was a teacher and a, and a coach, and is living yeah. by their example. Yeah, and for by the way, too. Professional wrestler, too. So I'd be acting, oh, singing awesome. for wrestling, yeah. So I, yeah. So where can people, uh, the, the film is available now on, on Pure Flix? Is it, when is it available? It is. It is now available on Pure Flix. I think it came out last week. I'm, I'm almost positive now. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, Pure Flix. I, I can't uh, think of the, the the web address off the top I of my head. I think again, we can search Pure Flix and find it. It's a pretty yeah. easy brand to find. And uh, we follow you on social media. Where can people check out all your projects and stuff? Where's the best place? 
Yes, so I'm at, at Harry Lennox, L-E-N-N-I-X, uh, at Harry Lennox on Twitter and Instagram. I'm pretty sure I'm, uh, I'm no expert, but I, I do have those profiles out there. I'm also working on a project in Chicago, which is building a museum for the performing arts. Uh, it's called African-American Museum for the Performing Arts, or AMPA, museum.org, ampamuseum.org. So you can find out about what, what all is going on. Uh, with me and my life on those on those uh, platforms. I'm going to definitely check it out. And anytime, I'd love to have you on, Harry, to talk about, promote that, uh, what's going on there. So definitely we'll, we'll connect again. Okay. All right. I appreciate it. And Kim, Kim, you go KimSorrell.com. Right, Kim? For information. KimSorrell.com or loveis.info, whichever right. is easier. Right. I appreciate you guys. All right. You're watching and listening to the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And you know what? This story is quite interesting. Somebody who uh, had successful law practice sold it and went on to live the life and dream he wanted, but also had a successful law practice. So he's multiple different stories. So I'm like, welcome to the program, uh, law, 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 former lawyer and entrepreneur, Mike Chastain. Mike, what's up? How are you? I'm great, Neil. It's a real pleasure to be here today. So, you know, tell me that, like, you know, the whole thing, when you were a lawyer, you didn't want to put yourself out there at all, right? Pretty much, unless you were promoting your law firm. Marketing and law don't really mix sometimes, does it? Well, you know, you do have to have a brand uh, in order to bring clients in and, and you have to uh, promote your reputation. But as a general rule, especially the kind of work that I did, I was a criminal defense attorney. Um, being in the press generally wasn't good for my clients. So, uh, yeah, I wasn't doing a lot of things, although I did do a, I had a radio show that I did for four years. Um, you know, we did a fair amount of marketing. I mean, you do need to, um, get your name out there so that clients show up. Well, so the best lawyers, I guess you were one of the best, meaning you did well for yourself. A lot of them don't do the proper marketing. They don't understand about personal branding. They're afraid to personal brand themselves. So it seemed like outside the box, you knew that importance. There are people, trust me, I know defense attorneys like the or ones who are hurt in an accident in Pittsburgh. If you ever gone to Pittsburgh, Edgar Schneider is the biggest known commodity in Pittsburgh. There's someone in every place that, hey, that's the brand for law. Right. Okay. So you do you understood some of it, your own radio show. You really knew branding before podcasting. So it's not the biggest challenge for you to get out there and talk to people at that, it sounds like. No, well, it, it was for a while, Neil. So, you know, when I, so I originally started in the public defender's office. I did about 17 years there. And then I was in another firm that had a rainmaker that had been around for a long time. I opened my firm in 2007. And I did have this belief that just because I was good at what I did, that people would somehow magically know about that and contact me. Um, it took me a number of years to really figure this out that, no, that's not the case. You got to get your name out there. You've got to brand yourself um, and you've got to let people know, hey, this, these are the services I offer and these are the kind of results that you know, we historically get. Um, and once I, I kind of cracked that code a little bit, I was able to... Um, you know, really grow the firm to a, to a point where, you know, we were doing routinely seven figures every year with just a couple lawyers. And, uh, you know, we were, we were quite successful for sure. Very good. And so that, so then you made the choice to sell it. And then you, you, 
early, right? Not you got out earlier than some, right? Well, I, I, I've been practicing for 37 years, so I don't know how early you, know, you look a lot younger than that, man. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm 62. You do um, not look 62. So, I, I thought you were in your 50s. I'm serious. So yeah, what, well, what, I, what, what, I, yeah, go ahead. I, well, I appreciate that. I, you know, I've, I've always uh, worked hard to take care of myself. When I, when I hit 60, I began to, you know, think about, um, you know, were there other things that I wanted to do? It really wasn't a, a factor that I didn't like practicing law. Um, but there were other things that I wanted to do and, uh, you know, uh, it'd be a long story, but basically, uh, my wife and I decided we wanted to move to Santa Fe, New Mexico from Sacramento, California. And in order to make that happen, uh, I'd have to, you know, sell the practice. So I've sold it. I still remain what they call of counsel. So, um, I still get to use some of my experience and help the other lawyers that are involved. But from the day, you know, the day-to-day -day practice, I'm not doing that. I'm not in the courtroom anymore. So that's, um, you know, that was kind of the progression. And, and that all started this year. So selling the practice, how challenging is that? Because again, when anyone sells a business and they're going to buy Mike Chastain and what he's done and he's no longer there, you better have a system in place that shows your value system what you bring to the table, the results you bring. And that's any business. If you're going to look to sell a business, they better, whoever buys that business, have the same mentality that can be systematically repeated over and over and over again. That's like, for me, I'm trying to figure all that out in my entrepreneur journey. Now I've created a certain system. How if tomorrow I drop dead, God forbid it could happen, you know, what do I do next? And that's why no one invests in companies unless they have two partners in an organization. How did you sell that to people to see, hey, you know, even though I'm leaving, you're going to have a still successful, thriving practice, and I'm going to be here to hold your hand till at one point I won't have to. Right. So, I mean, you you, you nailed the, the, the main thing is you got to have the systems in place. Um, when we sold the firm, it really was turnkey. I mean, all they had to do was come in and follow the systems. Uh, they made a few little uh, minor changes, but for the most part, um, all the employees stayed, all the systems stayed in place. Um, and, you know, that was really critical. The, the other part was that I had all the data. I had been collecting um, every piece of data that I could possibly get on the firm for the past six or seven years. And so I could show this history of growth and how these systems actually work. So, um, you know, Martin Jones, who purchased our firm, um, so it went from being Chastain Law to being Chastain Jones. So my name is still there to, to draw in the uh, clients. Um, but he'll do better than a million dollars this year um, right out of the gate. And that's for a small criminal defense firm, that's extraordinary. Wow. And so you got to credit yourself for what you did. So you just turned it over and that's it. That's the best business to buy especially boom, you're, you're, you're there. Was he not a partner with you ever? So he just came in out of, so you, when you were looking to sell the firm. So what I did is, is um, when I, when I first decided to sell it, I uh, asked myself who in the area do I think would be a good um, fit for this? Uh, he was uh, working in the public defender's office. I knew Martin, I knew he was a, a really fine lawyer. And so I just asked him, would you be interested? And the timing was right. 
Um, so he joined the firm for about three or four months just as an associate, just to make sure it was a good fit. Um, we worked out all the details. We got a lawyer to you know, put together our contracts. And starting the 1st of uh, 2022, so January 1, um, everything shifted over. And I stayed um, in California for uh, about six months on and off finishing cases that I had you know, promised the clients that I would personally handle. Uh, and I still have one left. I still got, I got to go back the first of the year and finish one case um, uh, to do. So I'm not completely out, but yeah. I won't be back in California until, you know, end of January. Did you watch the Lincoln lawyer on uh, Netflix? Did you get the chance to see that yet? I didn't watch it on Netflix. I saw the original movie with McCullough Hayes though. Okay. So what do you, is that the kind of day in the life of a defense attorney in certain ways and defending people? No. No, yeah. you know, first of all, we didn't work out of a car. Um, we have, a, we had a very nice office. Um, uh, we have, we had three lawyers, so we staff all of our cases. We go over them, um, get everybody's input about how to move forward. Um, but the truth is it's much more of a grind. You know, it, there's just, a, it's not all exciting and fancy and being in the courtroom. Um, which is the best part. I love, I love being in trial. I did a lot of jury trials. I had a lot of success. Even this year, I had two, two straight out acquittals, um, mm -hmm. which was very exciting. Um, but, you know, being a lawyer is hard work because you're dealing with other people's problems, right? Yeah. That people come to you because there's a major issue oh. in their life. You have to help them navigate through that. Right. Did you ever see Suits? With, uh, did you ever watch that show? I'm just wondering. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't watch a lot of TV. So. so you'll have to go back and watch it, especially as the yeah. actor, because they're and maybe write up things in a blog or something about the experiences, what these shows like Law and Order and all these and the, how truthful are they versus not? You know what I mean? With the lawyers right. and all that and, and the grind because they make it like you know, craziness, you know. And well, you know, they, they condense from the moment of the arrest to the uh, verdict, you know, in an hour. And, right. you know, the, the time frame typically is somewhere between six months and a year. I, I had I, I tried a case this year that was three years old. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, there, you just have to extend it out and then fill in the gap of all the work, the real work that yeah. goes into the case. So after you sold your practice, you moved to Santa Fe, but now you're not retired, retired. You're still have entrepreneur mindsets. What's happening with you now? So now what I'm doing is I'm working with uh, small and solo law firms to, to teach them how to build the systems and uh, how to become profitable and turn their firm into an asset that if they choose to, they could sell. They may not want to, but if you build it so it is a sellable asset, it will be far more profitable and a whole lot more fun to run um, than you know, just doing the day-to-day -day grind. And are you working just with defense attorney law firms or any type of law firm? You're niching that one? I will work with, I'll work with anybody who wants it. So I, I'm not limited to a practice area. Obviously, I know the, the criminal side much better. But bankruptcy, immigration, family law, you know, all the, the uh, business principles are fundamentally the same. Awesome. So it's just, you know, what service do they provide? There's a few tweaks there, but the, the business process is the same. You know, one of the big turn turnarounds for me is when I went from owning a law firm to owning a business that provided legal services. And that was just in my own head. 
But once I understood that, that I have a business here that provides legal services, um, it became a lot easier just to use the basic business principles and to collect the data and to understand how this really works. And so you're smart to understand that any business better do market research, better understand who their competition is, what their price point is, what all those different things before they go out and how many don't do that, Mike. They don't. Right. And I'll be one to be honest, me and my businesses, how they started. They started out of nothingness, but they grew to somethingness. But that also is kind of a brand. I'm a former professional wrestler that started out in tutoring business after tutoring business, went to a PR company to now this media company. So it's just, it just varies based on who, what happened, but I consult my clients saying, if you're starting, if I knew that I had cash flow and I was starting something from the start, I'm going to do market research first, understand what it is, put a system in place. It's, it's hindsight being 2020 in some ways, Versus some people that create something out of nothing and they didn't really true, truly want to. Can you imagine? Right. I mean, you hear these stories, you're like, wow, I guess I'm one of those stories. When I started my radio show, I had one station. Now I have 150 plus stations. I have the, the syndication. I have a YouTube channel with X amount of subscribers. And I'm, I, and I'm interviewing major celebrities. Never thought that from the start. I didn't have a blueprint written down. But right. now I want to go back and say, hey, when you create a blue ocean strategy, what do you do? In law, it's the same thing. And how much is branding involved? I'm so glad you said that with lawyers. And when you're going to be working with law firms that need branding, right? 100% they use SEO, but they don't, they're not branded. There's no story of each law firm. Right. Well, and, and I would say from the law perspective, um, people are really handicapped by the, the law school's failure to teach people these things, you know, they, all law school really does is it, it gives you the right to practice law. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, they don't teach you how to practice law. And they certainly don't teach you how to run a business. Uh, you know, back in the day, when I graduated in 1985, very few people went out uh, and hung out their own shingle and, and had a small firm. You, you went to a big firm, partially because of libraries, right? We didn't have the internet back then. We didn't have you know, um, cell phones and computers and all of that. Nowadays, many, many more lawyers are going out and starting their own firms, but nobody's showing them business the right way to yeah. set it up. And the business so principles it, are ridiculous. It, yeah. How, and, right. and I see this firsthand, and I'm not going to say why I do, I'm seeing it firsthand right now what I'm dealing with in life that I'm seeing specifically how one lawyer goes to a next lawyer to goes to a next lawyer and how they don't organize these things. Right. When I've had business issues where I've had to, you know, deal with attorneys or different things and then how they handle something and how they're legally bringing it down the chain of command to make sure systems work versus you saw that you created a small law firm that was profitable and did very well. And you're going to be able to help any size law firm understand it because the bottom line is, it's all about providing results. Absolutely. And, and setting yourself up so that you have the space and energy to actually focus on the client's problems. Fundamentally, you don't want a lawyer who's worrying about paying the rent because he's taking that energy away from your case and focus on your you know, issue, right? So being financially uh, successful and having money in the bank for the rainy days for the COVID, Holy smokes, you know, COVID buried a lot of lawyers yes. because they weren't prepared. We had, you know, a hundred grand sitting in a bank 
that had been saved up for a rainy day. We didn't know what it was going to be, but thank goodness we had it because yeah, California, God, I feel for you, man. Hey, yeah, yeah we, we California businesses. Oh my, California business must have been a hit. Awful. All right, so Mike, you have that. Uh, you talked about Santa Fe. We've hit everything. I told you we'd hit every topic through my conversation. It's such a short combo, but I definitely want to talk to you again because uh, it's amazing. Where can people go? Let's just say, you know, and I'm telling you, there are law firms. You have you have a blue ocean of hitting every law firm up in the country and talking to them about what are you doing for long term for your business? Where do you see things going? Where can people go, Mike, to learn more about you and stuff? So they can go to my website, which is MikeChastain.com. Um, Chastain is spelled with an E on the end. Uh, most Chastains don't use the E, but we do. Um, or they can contact me directly on uh, mchastain at Gmail. And, um, you know, I, I take a, a, a limited number of clients at any given time. I offer a 45-minute uh, uh, analysis of whether or not I can actually help you. You know, is there a situation that I can actually provide services for you that will move the needle? And um, after that, you know, then we make a decision of where to go from there. All right. Well, appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for stopping by. And it was great information. And it re can relate to any other business. So people listening, this relates to any business people. Trust me, because you don't have a system and a process in place. You don't have a, everything in place. And you're scaling that out. You have to look at specifically what happens if you can't be in that business the next day, what happens to the business? So appreciate it, Mike. All right. Well, thank you very much, Neil. Appreciate it. You're welcome. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I never have interviewed a husband-wife team separately. And that's hilarious because I've done it uh, before. But my guest today is Elisa Chastain. Elisa Thanks for stopping by. And you know what? It's you're an author, entrepreneur. And I talked to Mike and I was blown away about, and you're the brains behind that. So thanks for stopping <laughs> by at the brains of the business operation side, because you're an entrepreneur. So entrepreneur turned author. So tell us a little about your entrepreneurship and then we'll get right into. Oh, absolutely, Neil. Thank you for having me on today. Um, I started when I was in college, which is a long time ago, um, with my first business as a wearable artist. I did that for almost 17 years. I was very successful at it. I was doing um, what they call now pop-up shows. Back then, it wasn't considered that. But I was really carving my own path in marketing uh, with that business. Um, it was very fun. At one point, I decided that I was done with it. I want a bigger challenge. So I moved on to some different businesses. Um, eventually, I got with my husband and um, helped him run the law firm. And we built it up to um, quite an amazing business over the years. And then eventually sold it about a year ago. But prior to that, I started writing books a year, actually two years ago now, and I first published uh, my first book about a year ago. Um, that one is won over 14 national international awards, wow. which I'm very proud of. You can see some of them on the wall yeah. back there. Uh, so I'm very proud of it because it is undoubtedly the hardest thing I have ever tried to do as an artist. Um, yeah. I could say as an entrepreneur too, because that's a very creative process. Yeah, being most definitely. So tell me, tell me about the book that you wrote. Okay. So my book is called Buried But Never Forgotten. And it's a fictional account um, of my life and experiences I've had. Um, and just my perspective on 
the spirituality, um, the world, uh, what's going on right now. We're living in very challenging, but very exciting times. A lot is changing um, and changing for the better. Um, and so I wanted to share my story, but in a way that that kind of merged in a lot of my passions, which is dealing with um, the things that we don't see on the surface, you know, like lost history, hidden history, archaeology, science that may not be accepted mainstream now. So most of it is out of the mainstream. But what I want to do really, Neil, is like is help open up people's minds to a bigger reality that maybe they have never entertained before. And I think when we crack those doors open up possibilities that it really allows us to um, encounter and embrace growth in our life. You know, when we keep ourselves in a box, we, we tend not to grow. And it's very easy to do in the world as it is. You know, we're bombarded with all kinds of stuff from the outside. But what's inside of us? And I think that's where our really our truth is and where we can find the truth. Yeah. And that's that's so true. So you, what did you discover from writing this book about all the things well, that were buried about you? Because here's the thing. We look at our childhood. We don't understand why we become who we are. And sometimes it takes us forever to figure that out. And then it's something that hits us, like slams against us, some huge life-changing thing. And then we finally say, that's why we were who we were. Because yes. of that. Yes, and exactly. Exactly. You got to hit it on the head. And we were talking about it last night, Mike and I, and how it's all an inside job. And sometimes it takes like, you know, I feel like the messages are always there, but we aren't trained to listen to them. So I know they come louder and stronger. And sometimes it comes with a real impact <laughs> to get us to, to wake up and to um, hear the message. And the character in my book, she had a very catastrophic event happen in her life that was her wake up call. Mm -hmm. And through this series of events, she had to survive just something that is just um, basically being buried alive and ending up within the earth. So we're going into a lot of hollow earth theories and stuff like that. But that's her journey. Um, and it's a metaphor for really the the journey of personal growth, whether it be like you want to call it the shamanic journey, whatever. It's all about going inside, you know, figuring out who we are, why we do the things we do. We start to unravel all those outer influences from our childhood, from society. Other, other experiences. Yeah. And why do we figure out ourselves later? Why does it take us later? Or some people, they figure it out right off the bat, but others don't. What do you think the reason is? Is it because of influence around us? Environment? What are your thoughts? I think a lot of that has to do with the journey that we came here to earth to do. You know, some of us came in um, with a, a different path. And whether it be, you know, from, I, I definitely am a proponent of reincarnation. I think we, we are eternal souls having an eternal experience. And it includes many different types of experiences and potentially lots of different lives. So I think we all come in in different phases of the journey. And even amongst that, sometimes I think, you know, our life is about, you know, maybe accomplishing so much or maybe waking up to one certain aspect. Maybe it's about waking up to a lot of different things. It's such a unique thing. And I think one of the biggest, one of the biggest things all of us could do for ourselves and a favor to each other is not to judge each other about that. 
you know, my journey is very unique to me and it's my responsibility. Yeah. Your journey is unique it's to you and it's your problem. responsibility. And there's got to be somebody to talk to. Them. So I don't know that your book's not part of that, but there's got to be somebody to talk to. I have, well, some of my format of my network is going to be covering a lot involving mental health and that we can't tell our story either through books or to other people. We aren't, we don't, we really don't get to know who ourselves are. You know, we miss that. You need to have somebody to talk to that's not going to have any judgment, zero judgment zone. Yes. Who are they? Right. It's certainly not going to be family because family is rife with a lot of judgments and they tend to put us in boxes according to who they think we are because they knew us since we were just a little teeny boo. You know, our friends, the same thing, you know, but even within ourselves. So you're right. We do have to reach out. You know, um, and reaching out should help us to reach in. And at some point in our journey, hopefully we've cleared enough of the channels open where we can hear that inner voice. And then the real exciting part comes because we can dialogue with ourselves, with our higher selves and be able to make changes much more quickly and adjust, you know, much more rapidly to what yeah. needs to be done in the moment. You know, so that's for, to me is like the ultimate goal to get to that place where we have a relationship with ourselves. So in you the know. book, are you able to tell it's a metaphor in ways or? Yes. Oh, yes. I think it's very clear in the book because, you know, I address all kinds of different things like what we were talking about, you know, spirituality in a much bigger sense. And, um, you know, the journey, you know, being buried alive is, I would think most people would know that it's metaphoric, you know, it's a fictional account, yet it's weaving so much of my own story into it um, and beyond that, um, you know, it's very clear what this character, you know, the character is E in the book, and which is my my name with my close friends call me E, but the character is the story of E and, you know, she really is going through a process that I hope that a lot of people will relate to, which I know so far a lot of people are relating to, you know, they come from dysfunctional families, mine happened to have alcoholism in it, um, but whatever it is, we feel very alone and cut off and isolated. I mean, these are universal things totally. that happen to all of us that we don't know is not just unique to us, until we talk about it. And then it's like, Oh my gosh, that's so, it's such a powerful thing to think about. And then the metaphor. So I'm the kind of, I guess, ask the question, it's going through a fictional story. And then do you have, where is the, do you know it's a metaphor? Do you have that in the end of the book or how's the book laid out? Well, I do start at the very beginning of the book. I start talking to the reader and say that some of these things did happen to me and some of these things didn't. Oh, so, so it's, it's almost an autobiography, but yet entertaining. More, but it's so more. fantastical. Some of it seems so fantastical that you know. Okay, so what's like, next with that? You said you're you're right. You're now an author. This is your gimmick. This is the yes. deal. This is what you're doing. So what's the next book? This is my calling. Let's say it's my calling. I'm very specific about this because I feel called to do this and compelled deep within. Um, this, the, the story of E is a trilogy. So I'm working on the second book. Oh. The first book takes place with, you know, metaphorically buried mm-hmm. deep in going yeah. deep inside. The second book, spoil alert, she does survive and make it back to the surface. 
So the second book starts then is like her life in context of a bigger mm. uh, outside of herself is going to be in context to others, mm. in context to, you know, society, to, you know, politics, to, you know, pandemics, to all the crazy things going on. Now she has to take this inner knowledge, this inner awakening. How do I put this out into a bigger world. And I think that's hugely important for everybody nowadays because there's so much coming at us so fast about, you no, know, this is true, that's true, this is, this is happening, you know, that's happening, and we live in this right. dichotomies, you know? How do we address those dichotomies? You know, so the second book is about that. And then the third book is gonna be set in more of a celestial kind of context, is a, the next step bigger, so. That's exciting. And so, the lessons learned as a author and the excitement, all the awards. Now you got to step it up for your second book to get keep getting those awards. Where can people purchase your first book? Where can, where's the best place they, they can go? Well, you can go onto my website, which is metaphysicaladventures.com or buriedbutneverforgotten.com, the title of the book. Um, you can also look me up online, Elisa Chastain, and you should find it. Or you can go on Amazon and you can get, I have a paperback copy on An Amazon. And then on my website is the award-winning hardback cover that comes packaged in an award-winning package. I got um, the Da Vinci I nomination for how it was packaged, which is very cool. Um, yeah, so you could find either way, connect with me on Facebook. And, you know, I love to chat. I, I love more than anything is to talk about these things and to share with others and to hear their stories as well. All right, Elisa, thanks for stopping by and appreciate it. Thank you so much, Neil. You're you listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Behavior Therapy Podcast with our host, Christina Guerrero. Christina, how are you? And last week, we really talked about, you know, the homework crisis, but what about bedtime now? You gave them all those devices, they've been playing, they've been doing different things, and they've had dinner, and it's now time to wind down for bed. Another battle for parents to get kids to bed, <laughs> especially those teenagers that don't want to sleep ever. Yes, thank you, Neil. <laughs> Um, the, that's very important that you mentioned uh, teenagers because every age has uh, the amount of hours that they need to sleep, okay? And as teenagers, they, they usually sleep less hours, okay? And um, I have a lot of parents that they, they, with younger ones, they want their child to sleep, to take a nap, and then they want them to sleep the whole night. And that works when they're little, but as they grow, they grow older, you can have one or the other. You can have nap and then like for them to be in bed at 8 p.m. So you have to understand um, your your child. Does he, is he, uh, at what time does he have to wake up, okay? And when he wakes up, is he, is he struggling to wake up, okay? Uh, and then you have to calculate however many hours and whatnot. But let's say that you already, and then you have to have this conversation and include the teenager. You kind of just tell the teenager, you've been, you're gonna go to sleep at 8, 8, at 8 p.m just putting an arbitrary hour, you know, just because it just seems right, you know, uh, but having a conversation, especially with a teenager, well, you know what, I noticed that in the mornings you're struggling. So how about if you go to bed earlier so that we don't have to struggle in the morning and then what's in it for them. Okay. If you were to wake up early without me having to call you like 10 times, then perhaps we will have time to have that um, pancake or we could stop for that muffin, 
okay? But since we're struggling, we cannot. Because the whole idea is that as adults, we all go to work because we're gonna get paid, okay? And children are not any different. So what's in it for them? And a lot of parents are like, oh, that's bribing or they have to do it because I say so. I'm like, well, okay, you tell me how that's going for you, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you could probably get them, you know, arbitrarily to do something today, but by tomorrow they're, they're going to uh, figure, figure out a way around it, okay? And um, they, like we spoke before, what's happening right before, Okay, uh, if they're getting absolutely no attention, but when they're misbehaving, well, guess what? If they want attention, because that's what human beings need, we need connection, they're going to misbehave to get your attention. So that's why it's so important for parents to catch their children being good and giving them attention when they're actually being good. Mm, and just okay. five or 10 minutes of looking at each other's eyes and how's your day and give them a hug and how's things going. And maybe when they're, they're older, they don't want the hug, you know, they're trying being cool. But talking about what they want, not your agenda, but right. what, about what you like, you know, uh, getting down on their level and letting, getting them to talk just five or 10 minutes, but quality. Okay, but we have to take that time out. So with um, with the sleeping, most likely instead of attention, most likely it will be escape, you know, that they would like to, you know, buy some time, you know, as soon as I finish watching this thing on TV. Right. Uh, but if you allow them to escape once, okay, you're just teaching them, you know, that um, if last time I gave you five, five minutes, now they're going to negotiate 10 minutes. And 10 minutes and 15, and yeah, it's, it keeps going. Now it keeps going because uh, it's a learned behavior. You already taught me that if I, you know, if I, you know, complain and pout or whatever, you're going to give me five more minutes. So now I'm going to increase that so I can get 10 minutes, you know? So it's, it, I'm, I'm, as long as it works, I'm going to keep doing Yeah. It. So that's why behavior is not only one folder, like what the child is doing, it's what, how am I responding to what he's or she is doing? So let's talk about, you talked about that specific thing involving a behavior, uh, regarding bedtime. What about the younger kids? You said you want to check the time for each bedtime. So what's the best time for, let's say, younger kids, because we're, we're really focusing on school age kids right now. Mm -hmm. If they're kindergarten to like second grade, third grade, what's their bedtime? fourth grade to, to like seventh grade and then seventh grade to high school. Yeah. Well, uh, you have to consult your doctor and that depends with every child. Every person is different. Some people like to have eight hours and they function very well. Other people, they function on five hours. It's whatever. Okay. And you know, your child and you know, when he is in a moody, you know, in a bad mood because he didn't sleep well. And when he's not, when he's actually active and willing to learn. So I don't want to put an arbitrary number out there because um, everybody knows their own children. And also some people like they have to commute longer. So they have, you know, longer hours. So I don't want to say 8 p.m. and then they have to wake up at five. Otherwise they won't get there on time. So every home has their own peculiarities. But you, as parents, we know what is, you know, when your child is like tired and cranky in the morning and then you look like you could use some sleep, okay? And then just mention it. Um, just use it as an opportunity. Just when you see something that you don't like, that they're cranky, that they're tired, that they're like talking back, as and instead of going like, oh, this is not happening to me, I'm fighting it and, and make exploding, I'm like, huh, this is going to, 
probably happen tomorrow and the day after. So let me address it in a nice way so that we can all learn from this opportunity because which family is being in a situation where everything goes perfect? Come on, I mean, they only have this on TV. So you have to, um, you have, to um, have this conversation, just, okay, this is not what I would like to do. This is not what I, how I would like it to go. So let me see how I can cooperate with this. And we're teaching our children by modeling our behavior. So if I'm yelling and screaming and, and throwing a tantrum, I cannot expect the child to have all this vocabulary <laughs> to express his emotions when you're not exhibiting that behavior. <laughs> Got it. Is there anything else you should look at specifically the age groups? It's more about giving them a reward or some incentive to go to bed, right? Based on learn behave learning the process, right? Um, yeah, everything we learn, we learn because it works for us. Okay. So maybe if they enjoy having um, uh, a hot cocoa or chocolate or chocolate hot chocolate or uh if if they want to be a story being read everything you want to do a positive because i can coerce you today i can make you today do something because you're two years old three years old five year old ten year old but when you're 18 i cannot longer make you do what i want you to do because i'm forcing you <laughs> so you you want to create that harmonious relationship and that muscle that i can negotiate and verbalize my needs makes sense uh, it's again, it's all those different things. And you have a great resource, a place people can find information on you and learn more about how they can get that help if they're dealing with homework issues or they're dealing with bedtime issues or worse as we're going to talk about temper tantrums and the age of temper tantrums to multiple different subjects involving behavior. But where can they go? Alternative behavior uh, in Facebook and Instagram. That, that will be the one. Right. Appreciate it, Christina. Thanks again. Appreciate it. All right, that was the Behavior Therapy Podcast, guys. Take care. something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details